Amen, amen. Joel chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 20 from the ESV. Hear the words of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up and the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain and offering and drink offering, excuse me, are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before your eyes, joy and gladness from the house of your God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame burn, has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. These are God's words. You may be seated. For our babies, if they hadn't left already, uh, you can be dismissed ages, what is it, 3 to 10? Three to eight uh, for City Light Kids. Y'all can go jump. Pal on Pastor Brian back there. For the rest of us, how we doing? Good, good. So glad to see you on this morning. Again, we want to welcome you to City Light Church. Whether it's your first time being here or whether you've been here from the very beginning, we are always happy to see you in the house of the Lord. 
For those who are watching, we thank you for gathering with us uh, wherever you might be. For those who are at home sick and watching, we miss you and we can't wait till the Lord restores you and raises you up and brings you back to us. Uh, we miss all of our family when, when uh, any of us are missing. Uh, we want to have everybody here to see your faces and know that it is well with you. Amen. Uh, I do want to also say thanks, uh, and I, I, I speak on behalf of uh, Pastor Brian as well, uh, to all of you who so lovingly lavished us uh, on last week. The cards were uh, beautiful. The gifts were amazing. We appreciate uh, the love that you guys show us, not just uh, on one day of the year, but you guys constantly love on us. The, the calls, the texts, the words of encouragement, the prayers, it's always a blessing. Uh, the fact that if we ask you to do something, you do it. Uh, that is not the case with every pastor in every church around uh, uh, the, the state. Uh, so we really thank you for um, making it a pleasure to serve. Amen. 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 Twice this past week, uh, I found myself pulling out my, my cell phone to take a few pics around some of the houses. For those who don't know, I'm a real estate agent. That's not a plug for business, just relevant to the sermon. Uh, but I found myself pulling out my cell phone, and this is even though that I have a pro professional-grade camera with me. And the first time I did it, I kind of I immediately scolded myself. You know, what are you doing? This is the very thing that I, I, I warn or encourage new agents against. Don't use your phone to take pictures. Always get professional pictures. You know, one, because you have a better opportunity of getting the house sold quicker, you know, with good pictures because people start shopping online now, right? And then two, other people who see, you know, how well you're representing their seller, that particular seller will call you and want you to work for them. So always get professional pictures. I even tell other sellers, you know, don't, don't trust your largest investment to someone uh, who expects to market your house with uh, uh, dark and flattering and poorly angled cell phone pictures that won't show your house in the best possible way. So again, I was having this conversation with myself and, and the difference that hit me between me and some of these other agents is I could probably get away with this because I know what I'm doing, right? I understand lighting and which angles are flattering. I know what verticals are and what they mean. I know Brother Jim has done some photography, so I can get some amens from him. But I know how to frame the picture to give it that wow factor. Tools, instruments, and devices, etc., are only as useful as the hands that hold them. In our text this morning, we'll see uh, uh, a disaster of, pun intended, biblical proportions. And even though this disaster is devastating and its effects are widespread, and even though this disaster leads to great loss in God's hands, this disaster is being used as a vehicle of rescue and not ruin. As you can note from the text that we read this morning, we are now in the book of Joel. Uh, two things to note before we jump in our text this morning. The, uh, 
First is that the book of Joel is the second book of the 12 and what we call the minor prophets. And that's what we're working through right now, the minor prophets. And I believe Pastor Brian shared in one of his uh, uh, sermons on Hosea that uh, while uh, we call this uh, or these these 12 books, the minor prophets, it doesn't mean that these books are any less important than any others. They are simply called the minor prophets because of their length. Amen. The second thing worth noting is that the text doesn't date itself as some others do. Uh, For example, if you recall, looking back at Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, you see the following. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The words during the days of in the text gives us a frame to point to. It tells us not just a time, but a people to reference if we're asking who is God talking to, because that's how we should come to Scripture first, understanding who God was talking to and why. And then secondly, pulling what application we can that there might be for our learning. But Joel doesn't give us during the days of. And while some scholars feel that they have a good idea of the timeline of the book of Joel, I believe that God is purposeful in absolutely everything he does. And so in Joel chapter 1, the lack of during the days of, it's almost as if you can say, I felt, as if God is saying that this word not just applies to Joel's day, but to our day. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of our text. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, excuse me, Joel, the son of Pithuel. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? And we don't know much about Joel. That's the introduction of the book. So other than his name and the name of his father, we don't really know much. But again, I feel that God is intentional in the layout. You see, Joel's name means Yahweh is God or the Lord is God. So from the door, God is declaring sovereignty. From the door, he is telling us where our focus and attention should be. The text opens up with Joel commanding the attention of the people as he points them to a designed disaster. Hear this, he says in verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? As I read the text over and over again, as you do when you're studying a text, as you should when you're studying your Bible even, uh, this kind of put me in the mind of the old town criers. You know, hear ye, hear ye. He wants the attention of every ear. As many people as he can gather under the sound of his voice, he's drawing further attention to announce or rather to make his announcement before giving the news. And he frames it even with a question. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? He's building the suspense, right? He continues still building that suspense uh, beyond his question with a declaration that we see in verse 3. Tell your children of it 
and, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What is it that has happened? What is it that Joel has uh, to share that is so newsworthy? What's so special that he wants to, to quote the late American poet as we do sometimes here, Tupac Shakur, all eyes on me. Why does he want all eyes on him in this moment? Look with me at verse 4. With the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust uh, left, the destroying locust has eaten. Eaten. What's described was a devastating event with widespread effects. To frame for us what it might have looked like, because I don't know about you, but I've never seen a, 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 a locust plague. But to frame for us what that looks like allowed me to share from James Montgomery Boyce in his work entitled The Minor Prophets. He shares the following about another locust invasion. invasion. Quote, in 1915, a plague of locusts covered Palestine and Syria from the border of Egypt to the Taurus Mountains. The first swarms appeared in March. They, uh, these were adult locusts that came in from the northeast and moved toward the southeast in clouds so thick they obscured, they obscured the sun. The females were two and a half to three inches long and they immediately began to lay eggs by digging holes in the soil about four inches deep and depositing about a hundred eggs each. The eggs were neatly arranged in a cylindrical mass about one inch long and about, and about thick as a pencil. These holes were everywhere, he says. Witnesses estimated that as many as 65 to 75,000 eggs were concentrated in a single square meter of soil and patches like this covered the entire land from north to south. Having laid their eggs, the locusts flew away. Within a few weeks, the young locusts hatch. I hope you're picturing this. These resemble large ants. They had no wings, and within a few days, they began moving forward by hopping along the ground like fleas. They would cover four to 600 feet a day, devouring any vegetation before them. By the end of May, they had molted. In this stage, they had wings, but still did not fly. Instead, they moved forward by walking, jumping only when they were frightened. They were bright yellow. Finally, the locust molted again, this time becoming the fully developed locust, excuse me, the fully developed adults that had invaded the land initially. According to a description of this plague by John D. Whiting in the uh, December 1915 issue of National Geographic magazine, and you can find this, uh, and they got amazing pictures on the Library of Congress website. It's loc.gov. Whiting describes, oh, excuse me, lost it. Once entering a vineyard, the sprawling vines would uh, in the shortest time be nothing but bare bark. When the daintier morsels were gone, the bark was eaten off uh, the young topmost branches, which after exposure to the sun were bleached snow white. Then seemingly out of malice, they would gnaw off small limbs, perhaps to get to the pith within. Lastly, Whitting describes 
how the locust of the last stage completed the destruction begun by the earlier form. They attacked the olive trees whose tough, bitter leaves had been passed over by the creeping locust. They stripped every leaf, berry, and even the tender bark. They ate away layer after layer of the cactus plant, giving the leaves the effect of having been jack plain. Even on the scare and prize palms, they had no pity, gnawing off the tender uh, uh, ends of the sword like branches and diving deep into the heart, they tunneled after the juicy pith. Can you imagine? Just the sheer number, just the sheer mass of the, this, this, this moving. On the, on the uh, Library of Congress website, it shared that some people who witnessed it got motion sickness just from watching the waves of the locusts move across the landscape. And everything was affected. Everything was affected. And let's look back at verse 5 in uh, Joel 1 and take a look at some of the layout, fallout, excuse me. He says, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth. All this is a result of the locust. For a nation has come up against my land powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has splintered off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the ground is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. O well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. As a result of this massive number of locusts that have come through, there has been great burden and great sorrow. The drunks are sober and weeping because they've been cut off from their wine because all the vines and all of the fig trees have been destroyed. I didn't know that there was such a thing as fig wine. But I looked it up. It actually exists. But everything has been destroyed. And then when we get to verse 8, we hear the word lament. The word means to passionately express grief or sorrow. This is a very public hardship. And God is telling them that your grief should reflect the hardship that you're in. It should be evident again in verse 8 when he says, lament like a virgin in sackcloth. Sackcloth is the garment of mourning. In Genesis 37, upon receiving his son's coat of many colors and hearing about his son's Joseph's death, the Bible tells us that Jacob put on sackcloth and mourned his son for many days. And in response to the plague of locusts, mourning is the desired action in this moment. And mourning is what we see. In verse 9, he says, the priest and the ministers of the Lord are mourning. The grain and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord because of the destruction. Again, in verse 10, the ground mourns because the fields are destroyed. Verse 11, the farmers mourn because the harvest of the field has perished. 
Even the animals in verse 18, Scripture tells us, are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the sheep suffer. So home life is wrecked. As food sources disappear. Work life is wrecked. As commerce and trade resources disappear. Temple life is wrecked. As items needed for sacrifice disappear. Wildlife is wrecked. As their food sources, food sources excuse me, disappear. What do you do when every comfort and seemingly every provision has been removed? Have you ever been there? Have you had moments in your life where everything seems to go wrong? Moments where you felt helpless. So I was reading this text and thinking about it. I I certainly thought about a few times in my life. My son's first pain crisis certainly being one of them. They called us to the hospital about two days after we brought him home to uh, get us back to the hospital to give us the news that our perfect little bundle of joy had sickle cell. Now, neither my wife nor myself knew exactly what that meant. And I can remember half paying attention to the lady as she was talking because we were, we were, uh, Naming and claiming church members back then, you know. So I was like, oh, my son, God can, God's going to heal that. So I really wasn't paying attention to it. But we kept moving forward. We didn't know what it meant at the time, but we were soon to find out. And hours into his very first crisis, and he was still very small, he was beginning to lose his voice from crying out and screaming from the pain. There was nothing that I could do but watch my son suffer, watch my wife suffer. I couldn't offer either of them any comfort. I couldn't make any provision for what they were going through. But God was using these moments like he's using your moments, like he's using this moment in our text Yes, it's a disaster, but it's a disaster by design. Remember, the tool is as good as whose hands hold them. And Judah is in God's hands in this moment. So it's a disaster by design, but to what end? What's the purpose of God allowing the people to experience such hardship? Look with me at verse 13. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest, wail, O ministers at the altar, go in past the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because the grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of your God and cry out to the Lord. Put on sackcloth and lament. Cry out to the Lord. These are pictures of repentance. Again, sackcloth is a garment of mourning. And the people are in mourning because of the hardship that they're suffering. And they're suffering this hardship because of their sin. In Joel 2.12, we see these words. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God, for he, has, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God is using the plague of locusts as judgment against Judah, but not for their destruction. He's using the locusts for their rescue. You see, family, as bad as the locusts were, the locusts were temporary. Their loss, as devastating as it was, it was temporary. Their lives before this, as good as they might have felt that it was before the locusts, was temporary. But God is eternal. His rewards are eternal. His judgments are eternal. Are we making eternal decisions based on temporary things? Whether they be temporary pleasures or temporary hardships, are we looking at them in the light of eternity? Because that's how God moves. He is moving with eternity in mind. So what are the locusts in your life? What's stripping you of fruitfulness? What temporary thing is robbing you of fellowship with God? We have to pause and examine ourselves, understanding that if we fail to properly assess what's going on in our life, excuse me, not just my life, but my life, because I was examining my life this past week, God may choose to wreck us, to save us. Isn't that a bit extreme? You're talking about locust plagues and wrecking my life? Isn't that extreme? Yes. It's extremely loving. Extremely loving that he would go to such lengths in hopes of literally driving the people back to himself. Because in verse 15, we get the words that point us beyond the temporary judgment of locusts to the eternal judgment of the almighty God. He says, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is dear, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Alas for the day. The word alas here is the Hebrew word. It looks like aha. I don't think that's how it's actually pronounced, but it looks like aha. The word here is an interjection. It's an exclamatory word expressing pain. Like if you were to, uh, uh, something were to happen to you and you were just to scream out in pain. A day of destruction from the eternal and almighty God is coming. And scripture tells us that no man knows the day or the hour in which the son of man shall appear. Simply gives us the admonishment to be ready. Because the day is coming. What would you do for the ones you love? Again, something I've shared here before. Years ago, again, when Jabin was young, you know, all of my life is just Jabin, Jabin, Jabin. When he was young, we were coming out of Kroger and just finished putting the groceries in the car. And he turned and he ran across the street to put the buggy in the, the, the cart in the little buggy place. And without looking, he turned to run back. And as he's running back, there's a, a truck that's just speeding through the parking lot. 
And so I yelled out, you know, Jabin, stop! When thinking about who was there, who was watching, or what they might think about me, all I saw was my life's son, or my son's life, rather, in danger. And so I screamed out with everything that was in me. This was an interjection. It was exclamatory speech. The danger was too clear and too present. I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't whisper. I couldn't keep silent. God is using a locust plague as an interjection. This is his exclamatory statement through Joel to Judah because of his deep love for them. Do we believe that God interjects on behalf of those he loves? And if we do, if we really believe that, if we really believe that the day of the Lord, a, a day of final and eternal judgment was coming, would we be more intentional in the way we live our life? Would we share in Joel's urgency uh, uh, here to be sure that the people around us heard our warning? Would we call out to the drunkards around us, be aroused, weep, and repent? Would we lament our sin and the sin of those around us? Would we cry out to God on their behalf? Would our witness be more of an interjection than an interference? There's another hardship that we hear about in Scripture. Another disaster designed by God, and we'll close with this. Another disaster designed by God not to wreck, but to rescue. This hardship came through the cross of Christ, God's Son. Matthew's gospel records for us that Jesus was betrayed. It tells us that the one who holds all power in his hands was handed over to people in positions he created. It tells us that he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, an innocent man on false charges. It tells us that the king of kings was stripped of clothes and dressed in a robe only to be mocked as soldiers taunted him, saying, all hail the son, excuse me, all hail the king of the Jews. It tells us that these same soldiers spit on him and beat him and led him away to be crucified. It tells us that he who knew no sin became sin that for us that we might become the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. It tells us that he died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. But it also tells us that on the third day he rose bodily from the grave with all power in heaven and in earth in his hands. And we are in his hands. If we have committed, if you have committed your life to God through Christ, you are in his hands. So no matter the trials or the tragedies that might come your way, you can face them confidently, knowing that they aren't there to wreck you because you have been rescued by God through Christ. 
And it is with this assurance, family, that I pray we will run and tell all who would hear with the same urgency that Joel does here in this text. Hear this, ye elders and all inhabitants of the land. Come and see what God has done. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. 